0: one thing my parents always told my brother and sister and I, I mean, I just remember this even when we were little, it's like, you can't rest on your laurels, you know, you always, you know, have to continue to, you know, earn your keep <laughs> in a way. And um, like even as kids, you know, that was something they instilled in us. So, um, you know, I think it's great. You're pushing yourself and you're trying to accomplish something and, uh, and then you, you move on and you continue to grow and evolve and, and see what's next. Not resting on her laurels, pushed this young athlete to keep entering
1: figure skating contests until she knew she'd become good enough to compete at the Olympic level. Christy Yamaguchi, next on Long Story Short. One-on-one engaging conversations with some of Hawaii's most intriguing people. Long Story Short with Leslie Wilcox. Aloha mai ho, I'm Leslie Wilcox. Christine Suya Yamaguchi, better known as Christy Yamaguchi, won an Olympic gold medal in figure skating for the United States in 1992. Since then she's been a professional ice skater, and author, wife, mother, the 2008 winner of Dancing with the Stars, and a philanthropist. A resident of Alamo, California, she stopped by to talk with us here on Long Story Short during one of her frequent trips to Hawaii on behalf of her Always Dream Foundation. Christy Yamaguchi has always set goals for herself, something she learned to do at a young age after overcoming a birth defect in her legs. Her parents encouraged and supported her along the way, believing in dreams despite their own experiences as children, forced to live in internment camps.
0: So I was born in Hayward, California, so that's a suburb of uh, in the San Francisco Bay area, in the East Bay, and uh, actually, my parents were living in Fremont at the time, but I was born in Hayward. So grew up in Fremont, which is was a sleepy town back then, and uh, it, was a, it was, you know, I can't complain. It was a great, diverse, and, um, you know, pretty easy place to grow up in I guess. Your dad was a dentist? He was a dentist. Uh, and Your mom? Yeah. Uh, she was a homemaker. Mm-hmm. She was a full-time mom. Um, although she did work part-time as we were getting older in in high school. Both my parents did spend time in the Japanese internment camps. My dad's family was in Poston, Arizona, and he was about five years old when their family was sent there. Um, Of course, his brother and sisters were more teenagers, so they remember it and, you know, probably affected a little more by it. But I think my dad being five, he just was kind of like going with the flow and... Mm -hmm. Making the best of it that he could, and then my mom uh, Carol was actually born in the Amache Colorado internment camp. So uh, she was born, uh, you know, one of the New Year's baby. <laughs> they called her in in uh, uh, Amache. So um, you know the families went through that, and they did have to start over. You know, once um, they were released and and find their way. But I think. You know, there was it's just a huge lesson, obviously, in perseverance and just, um, you know, a lot of pride in who they were and uh, being American and wanting to assimilate and, and prove their uh, loyalty. So, uh, so it was an interesting time. I and mean, it, it's funny, be- not funny, but that generation never really talked about it. And have your Have your parents talked about it? Not much. I mean, my... Mom doesn't remember, obviously, because she was just an infant, but my dad um, has opened up a little bit more about it because, um, like, my sister and I and brother and then also now his grandkids are doing uh, school papers or school presentations on the family and have been interviewing him on different occasions. And it's given him a chance, I think, to reflect a little bit on what he remembers.
1: At the time your mother was born her father was fighting in the war mm-hmm. as, f- yes, with the 100th.
0: Yes. 100th Infantry Battalion, so different from like the 442nd and the, uh, the 100th that you hear about. But he was in one of the first non-segregated units in Europe, and um, well, basically because he was the only um, person of color in his unit. And uh, he, yes, he had gone through two rounds of boot camp, because while he was in boot camp, the war broke out and they didn't know what to do with him. And eventually they sent him, um, you know, with the 100th Infantry Battalion to um, Europe. We really don't know much about what that experience is like for him. And I think growing up, Uh, The one thing that we do remember, like my brother and sister and I, is like he did have a lot of nightmares at night, and they're, you know, I think still living with um, post-traumatic stress. I think as we got older, we started to realize, um, you know, through his life experience what he's been through. But I think one of the proud moments is that we know he was awarded um, a battlefield commission And was promoted, and uh, he he was his uh, commanding officer was actually quoted that he was undeniably one of the best soldiers soldiers in their unit, and -hmm. that's why he received that battlefield commission. So I think reading that and seeing it in the New York Times was just like, wow, you know, it's takes a lot of character, a lot of strength, and um, you know, to really fight for what you believe in, and you know, against maybe some you know obstacles that are there. That's
1: that's amazing. That's absolutely true. What did he do after the war?
0: So after the war he was a mechanic. They, he settled um, in Gardena, California and that's where I know where my mom and her brother and sister grew up and went to school. And uh he was I think also part time fisherman and to this day my parents won't eat fish <laughs> or my mom won't <laughs> eat fish, because she had enough of it growing up. But um but yeah, I mean he was just a, a great dad. I know he provided for his family and uh a husband and and a great grandfather. We just I just remember having so much fun visiting them and um you know, and enjoying the time we spent together. You were
1: born with a, a birth defect, malformed <laughs> feet.
0: Yes, yeah.
1: And, and here you yeah. are later winning Olympic gold with on these feet. On
0: these feet, yes. My mom always described it like this is how my legs were when I was born. They were like uh, just crossed and twisted. But I didn't have, I think, the severe where I had to have surgery, but I did have casts um, for the first 18 months, Of my life, and then was put into corrective braces. Um, And I remember wearing those tall, probably past the age of like two or three, because I remember trying to walk with this bar in between my feet and sliding on the wood floor. So, you know, I just discovered that army crawling was the the quickest and easiest way to get from point A to point B. Um, But yeah, you know, I think I was just really lucky my parents were proactive at correcting it. You know, so early on, and allowing me to have the opportunity to, to you know, pursue skating. <laughs> and after
1: the braces came off, you weren't you weren't daunted. You were
0: you were ready to to skate. Ready to go? Yeah. I mean, I did uh, ballet, and that was you know one area of dance that I really loved, and then that led into to skating, and I think. Um, you know, when I showed the interest, my mom did ask the pediatrician, is this okay, you know, with her condition, you know, even though much of the corrections were were done at that point. And um, I think the advice was, yeah, I think this is great because it's helps with strengthening and coordination and um, it'll be good for her.
1: Um, It's a great um, inspiration for those who who also have that corrective Uh, work done
0: yes no absolutely and you know and and to the to this day i know i'm still bow-legged it's just how the shape of my legs and uh you know a lot of skaters out there successful skaters who are good jumpers who are also bow-legged so it's like (laughs) well in some ways it maybe wasn't even an advantage for the sport i chose
1: Chrissy yamaguchi started ice skating as soon as her mother felt she was old enough Her passion for the sport grew immediately, and soon the rest of her life and her parents' lives started to revolve around her ice skating schedule. At what point did skating cross your eyes and your heart?
0: I was six years old when I really first started skating. And my older sister Lori skated for, you know, a couple months. And it wasn't really her thing, so she moved on. But I was kind of like, hey, that seemed kind of neat. I want to try it. Um, and then, you know, I kept asking about it, and my mom took us to see the local ice show. And at that point, it was like, that's it. That's what I want to do. So she said, okay, when you're six and you're old enough, I'll take you to go <laughs> skate. And so I had to wait till I was six and went to uh, try it for the first time and loved it And I think every day asked when we were going back. I remember my very first competition. Uh, I was about eight years old and, um, you know, just kind of not really knowing what's going on. I went competing, skating. I thought I skated fine, whatever. And uh, my mom always reminds me, you were 11th out of 12. (laughs) (laughs) And it was just like, it was kind of a wake-up call, and I didn't understand, like, how come those girls have these shiny medals? And they're running around wearing these medals. Who am I going to get one of those? And she's like, well, you have to be top three in order to get those medals. And I think that's when the competitiveness and the, like, hey, I want one of those. What do I have to do to get one of those Uh, kicked in? And uh, that's where it started. (laughs) That requires an incredible commitment from your parents as well. It's it's a huge commitment. But luckily, they didn't know what they were getting into. They just thought, oh, ice skating, and, you know, they saw an activity that I took to Because I did try everything else, gymnastics, soccer. Were you good at all those things too? No. Terrible. (laughs) And I, I just, my heart wasn't in it, but I think when they saw how much I loved skating, and how I was improving and really taking to it, um, they said, you know what, Let's, let's go with this and see what happens. So, you know, yeah, I mean, right away, they just kind of rolled with it, and I was going, you know, several times a week, and by the time I was in junior high, it was every day before school, sometimes after school, and competitions on the weekends at least once a month, probably. How much
1: did you have to give up in social life to pursue skating?
0: There was, yeah, I mean, skaters do not have the normal social life because um, I think I maybe went to one football game in high school, you know, and in, in, in a couple school dances, whatever, but it's, you know, I was in bed by 7.30 almost every night because I was up at 4 and on the ice from 5 to 10 or 5 to 11 every day. So um, the training schedule was, you know, Early in the morning, and then I would rush off to school, and then um, I would at have, eleven o'clock. At eleven, yeah, I did have special schedule through high school, um, where half of my classes were on campus and half of them I did through independent study. So, uh, so yeah, so in that case too, it was just not the normal high school schedule. Not really,
1: a, you had to give up. You you had to give things up because that's a, That's everything. That's all all in.
0: It was all in. It was all in at that point, but. For me, it was a choice. I didn't see it as giving up. It was like, well, this is what I want to do. So, well, what did you
1: want I, to do? With, I mean, obviously you wanted to skate, but what did you want to do with it? Were you,
0: um, you were, you were- at that point, it, you know, once I was 15, 16, it was the, the Olympic goal was there. You know, when I first started skating, I just loved to skate and perform and be in the shows and wear the pretty costumes. <laughs> but as I got older, and particularly in the high school age, um, competing at the world level was my goal. And uh, in 1989, uh, when I was a senior, it was my first world appearance. And then at that point, um, I think the prospect of making the Olympic team was getting closer and closer.
1: You know, I think for most of us, we've had experience competing in maybe junior high or high school sports or, or, or perhaps college. But I, I can't imagine the level of competition at the Olympic level. Just what kind of um, focus you need to have and, and the skill level.
0: Well, it, you know, it's practice every day and, like I said, several hours a day at that point. Um, and it's, it's a lifestyle for sure. It, and what do you fill your mind with? You know, I mean, I was just a, a competitive Person by nature, and you know, every day in practice, I was competitive, even with my training mates. And um, you know, it was just I knew I had a task at hand, and I worked really closely and really well with my coach of uh, from the time I was nine years old through the Olympics. I was with the same coach, Christy Ness, and she was. Um, probably had one of the biggest influences on my life as a mentor and um, teacher so learning you know work ethic and setting goals and the mindset was always okay what is my goal today what is my goal in the next hour on this session and there was always something to work towards and um, you know she made it clear if you're working and putting that time in it's gonna you're gonna get You're going to make strides forward. And so that was always my motivation, was like always trying to push myself. She would always tell us, her students, there's no secret to success. It's plain and simple hard work. There's no question, you know, the effort that you need to put in. And there were times when we were training and, you know, she would yell out to someone, one of her pupils, "Uh, don't be afraid to work hard, (laughs) you know, because, you know, maybe one of us was slacking or, you know, not putting 100% in, and it was just like, okay, okay, <laughs> yeah. let's, you know, get the work. And, and, and it was true. You know, I think it's just you can't expect results if you don't put the work in. And as a youngster and a teenager, having that ingrained in you, I think it was uh, so valuable because even beyond, you know, after the Olympics, mm-hmm. it stayed with me, and it was just, you know, not satisfied with just getting through it, but putting the work in. And it could be as simple as, I'm going to practice this jump ten times this session. And hopefully there's an improvement, <laughs> and I'm not falling all ten times. But, you know, putting the effort in. and Or it's like I'm running through my long program routine twice this session, and hopefully without mistakes. So, you know, yeah, it's, it's always having a purpose every time you're going out there.
1: And it's very... Um... Self-directed, it has to be right. You're 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 Mm -hmm. preparing yourself for this gargantuan competition and challenge, so it's necessarily
0: solo and self. Pretty much, you know. I think when I was older, and um, you know, especially becoming a mom, you looking back, just like wow, it it really was a pretty self-centered life that I lived. You know, um, it was an individual sport. You know, I had my individual goals, and it was up to me to just focus in and and make that happen. And, of course, had a team of people around around me. helping you. And you didn't have to make room for anybody else. They made room for you. Right, right, exactly. And they were, you know, the common goal was for my success, right? So, um, yeah, there's a very, very narrow focus, you know, through that whole thing. Have you always been able to keep your head in it? No, no. (laughs) And I think that's the, the humbling thing about being an athlete and in skating, that, Um, you're going to have some great performances that you're like, wow, that was it, and that is what you live for. Um, But there are many where you skate off the ice just really disappointed and really wanting to go back out there and do it again because it's like, wow, there there were just way too many mistakes in there that I know I shouldn't have made. But you can't (laughs) look back, right? You've got to keep moving.
1: Yes, and
0: you take that and you learn from it, and hopefully in the next competition... Uh, you learn and and don't make those same mistakes.
1: There are many talented skaters, and uh, as you get older and you get ready to, to, uh, you know, to participate in the qualifying, you know, you you really don't know whether you're that caliber yet, Mm -hmm. do you?
0: I mean... Not really, yeah. I mean, I think it's just you're taking small steps along the way. I mean, you know, people ask, oh, when do you know you were going to become an Olympian? And I'm just like, like, a year before, maybe... (laughs) And <laughs> they're like, really? Like, you, you you know, up to that point, you didn't believe it or know it? I'm like, no, you're just trying to compete in your region and then in the West Coast and then nationally and, you know, now. And, and could you feel the competition get
1: tighter and oh, tighter yes. as you went up?
0: Yes, definitely. And, and, and the pressure and the expectations and, um, you know, figure skating being a judged sport, um, you know, that adds a whole nother layer of subjectivity and just like, how am I fitting in, or am I doing what the judges like, and things like that? But, um, but yeah, I mean, the competition was always close, and the U.S. has always been traditionally competitive world at the world level. So um, the talent pool was just—it was tough to even be noticed in, in your own country. What was it like approaching that fateful
1: day in 1992 mm. uh, when you? One gold at the Olympics?
0: I feel like from 91 to 92, it was like walking on eggshells the whole time. You know, it was just okay, you have a goal, you have a plan, and it's just trying to make every step go just how you want it to go. Um, you know, trying to stay healthy, injury free, uh, getting the rest, mm-hmm. and eating properly, and just, you know, not leaving anything on the table to be an excuse for uh, it not to work out, right? So, um, you know, it, it's, it's like living that just eat, drink, breathe, sleep, you know, skating. And, you know, you'll hear that from Olympic athletes all the time. And it's kind of true. It's, you know, Olympics isn't every four years for us. It's every day. And uh, it's Groundhog Day.
1: (laughs) So it's it's a short game, and it's a very long game too. Yes. Commentator Scott Hamilton said that you know you do all these jumps in your routines, but people don't so much notice how hard those jumps are because you you know it's part of a story you're telling visually. Mm -hmm.
0: Yes, I mean I think I um, was also proud to kind of be a part of the generation that really pushed the sport technically as well. Um, You know, my biggest competitor in those 90s, early 90s, was Midori Ito from Japan. And she was the first to land, successfully land triple axel in international competition. And so, you know, she pushed the boundaries as, um, you know, a, a figure skater doing the amount of triples that she incorporated and then incorporating the triple axel. Um, Tanya R. Harding was also doing the triple axle that ninety-two year at the Olympics. So um, technically the women that year were really, really, really pushing um, beyond uh what we've seen in the past in women's competition. And uh so I had to up my game too and incorporated the triple us triple toe combination to but be. But not able the to triple, triple axle. A, not the triple axle and I tried to master it. It wasn't mastered at the level where I was comfortable to incorporate it into the competition. So I knew the Triple H, Triple Toe combination had to be perfect and had to be my um, answer to their triple axel. And it put a, put a lot of pressure on me for that particular move, but um, yeah, I knew I, I had to have it. And uh, it hadn't been done at the Olympics before um, by anyone, so it was fun to be able to kind of push the envelope that way. And
1: you did, and you won.
0: (laughs) After winning Olympic gold in 1992
1: in France, Christy Yamaguchi went on to become a professional skater. And she married another athlete, former Olympic and professional ice hockey player Brett Hedekin, and they now have two teenage daughters. She also found a way to give back to the community. Every Olympian, after their Olympic career ends, must look at what life looks like then Mm -hmm. after spending almost every waking moment consumed with uh, competition Mm -hmm. and their art. Um, Did you know what you were going to do after you
0: ended your time with the, you know, skating professionally? I didn't. You know, I think, uh, yes, so much was spent on skating itself and the career path of a skater uh, that... I wasn't really, I never really had a plan after that. Um, But I think, you know, I had the natural segue of, you know, I found someone I want to spend the rest of my life with and start a family with. So really, as soon as I got off the road from touring as a skater, uh, we started a family. And that really took over um, for the next, uh, you know, four or five years, just being a mom. Um, but all through that, you know after immediately after the Olympics, even while I was touring, um, there was always a sense of um, continuing to have a purpose in life and to make an impact um, beyond just being an athlete and um, you know My parents had always been very involved in the community and uh, you know volunteers at school and at church and in the community so You know, they were like, you know, you've been so lucky. What are you going to do now? How are you going to give back? And um, that really uh, inspired me and spurned me to look at, hey, what what am I passionate about beyond, you know, skating and myself? (laughs) (laughs) And it was uh, children. And um, in 1996, shortly after the Olympics, I established the Always Dream Foundation, uh, who was all about... um, you know inspiring the hopes and dreams of underserved children Hmm. and I knew that that was uh, going to become my next passion and my next step in life beyond the Olympics. We've been going strong for 23 years and uh, the last eight years we've been focused on early childhood literacy and have uh, a reading program in kindergarten classroom age kids and you know we're all about leveling the playing field because not everyone is given the resources and opportunities or have that at their fingertips growing up and um, not even books in the home so how do you develop a foundation for learning um, if you don't have books in the home we are providing the tools for the families and the kids um, to be able to develop those literacy rich environments at home and hopefully give them you know the, the, the edge they need to have success in, in school and in life. Christy Yamaguchi found time during her busy life with
1: family and foundation to compete on Dancing with the Stars in 2008. Reluctant at first, she says that once her competitive spirit kicked in, she was in it to win it, which she did. Mahalo to Christy Yamaguchi of Alamo, California, a frequent Hawaii visitor, for sharing her life story with us. And thank you for joining us. For PBS Hawaii and long story short, I'm Leslie Wilcox.
0: Aloha Nui. When we looked to expand our foundation outside of California, this was a natural um, place to desire, and and um, you know we know the need is great here, and it was a perfect fit for the foundation to come out and um, and do its work. So. Um, so yeah, this it, it's, Hawaii does definitely has a special place in my heart and my family's heart. My older daughter Kira uh, is a hula dancer and she's um, earned her uh, her Hawaiian name and uh, you know has big dreams and aspirations to someday be at Mary Monarch. <laughs>
1: For audio and written transcripts of all episodes of Long Story Short with Leslie Wilcox, visit pbshawaii.org. To download free podcasts of Long Story Short with Leslie Wilcox, go to the Apple iTunes Store or visit pbshawaii.org.